Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a bright day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on this afternoon's programme, I'm delighted to have William Knowles Mofford alongside me. William is an entrepreneur and owner of the Looking Glass Cocktail Club and also Iron Bloom in Shoreditch, London. Uh, William, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure having you joining us on the airwaves. Um, The whole reason we're here is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And that is normally where we'd start. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we address that first. Um, It has, I'm sure you'll agree, proven to be one of the greatest challenges of our time for business leaders and leaders of governments alike. But being in the hospitality industry yourselves, just how has it affected you in your business? Well, once again, thank you very much for having me on. Um, and yeah, it, uh, when, when, when we sort of started to hear about COVID-19 and it coming across uh, over to our shores, um, I, think, I think it's safe to say that that's when it all really started, particularly in hospitality, because we got the initial, I mean, far, far, long before lockdown, long before the official you know, closing of the doors and uh, boarding up, um, there, was, there was so much turbulence just in in the in the sort of the nightlife and the events industry um, as a whole, and we just sort of watched as you know things like large major events cancelled, clients pulled out, people you know um, across the board in our business from um, like I say from people just pulling out of events to cancel uh, to cancellations, and it just really started this really you know unsettling. Uh, a wave, um, and it, it sort of ended up uh, eventually with us being completely closed down. Um, it was, you know, it sort of it sort of hit the market pretty hard uh, much earlier than that. Um, and then, of course, the the eventual shutdown on March the twenty fourth, I think it was, when we mm. had to close our doors um, entirely and uh, send our staff home and and, and cease and cease trading. Um, yeah. How has it been during the last few months since that lockdown was called managing the mental health of the people that you work with? Because I can imagine, particularly when the lockdown was called, there were a lot of uh, worried faces. I, I'm really sorry. Would you repeat that question? Yes. Yeah, so how has it been for you managing the mental health of the people around you? Because I can imagine there were a lot of worried faces when the lockdown was initially called to begin with, but also with the social isolation elements of the lockdown, that adds another element to that issue as well. Definitely, definitely, hugely. I mean, my, um, a lot of my workforce are from overseas. Um, a lot of my workforce, some are from Spain, some from Italy, uh, like in in the hospitality industry, there are a lot of people um, from the continent that come over to work in the service industry, um, and a lot a lot of my a lot of my a lot of my staff are very very concerned because um, this is not their home country. Um, so you know the, the sort of uncertainty of being locked locked down and in isolation, you know, in potentially a one or a two bedroom flat on 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 your own or maybe with you know, someone else, but there was a lot of a lot of anxiety and uncertainty surrounding that. And yeah, of course, people's mental health, people's mental health was certainly affected. Um, 
right the way through the process. Uh, and I think as a as as an employer, you have to you have to do your best. Whilst whilst I guess panicking yourself, mm. um, you have to also do your best to um, to sort of calm and reassure those around you, whether they be employees or business partners or or, or even patrons. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that's a very relevant question. And as well as that, um, you're having to be as a business leader, the person providing that direction and reassurance for the people around you. But as you say, you're not immune from the worry and the uncertainty yourself. So Uh when you do need a little bit of direction and inspiration for yourself, as it were, where is it that you tend to look to for that? Oh, where do I look to? Um, I think, I think as entrepreneurs, I think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to look to friends who are also uh, who are also entrepreneurs to do similar things to what they do, whether they be in the same industry or not. Um, other people who start businesses often have the sort of same sort of trials and tribulations as you do, uh, especially, you know, if it's, if it's sort of, we're a sort of um, uh, a, a two-person run company um, with with about uh, 10 employees. So, yeah, so there aren't many people within the structures to turn to, so often outside the structures of friends who are also entrepreneurs, um, or indeed, my uh, my my fiance is a very very clever woman who um, who always has lots of lots of uh, lots of good advice for me. Mm, so that's certainly a very interesting an example there because it just goes to show that some of the most influential leaders out there and people can be those that are closest to you, people who are parts of your family, people who are friends, for example, regardless of their uh, business background. And um, when you were sort of taking the uh, the step to become an entrepreneur yourself, William, I um, understand you opened your first bar at the age of 21. What was the sort of penny dropping moment, if we sort of switch focus slightly, which made you really think that going into business for yourself was going to be the way forward for you? Uh, well, I was hugely unacademic. Um, I, I struggled through university. I struggled through, through school and I struggled through university, um, school, sixth form, college, university. Uh, and yeah, academia certainly wasn't for me. I just didn't process, I didn't process things the way that other people seem to process things. Um, and while I was, I was finishing my bachelor's, well, I wasn't, I, I, I started a degree in social anthropology at Goldsmith University. Um, and I ended up as a sort of a way to pay my way through university because I'd moved out of home, uh, to, uh, fund my existence for the next three years. Uh, I got a job working at a nightclub, um, on the door of a nightclub. Uh, and this was, this was, um, years ago. Uh, and I, I ended up, uh, getting very close to the guy that owned the nightclub and, um, and working alongside him for, uh, three years, um, as a general manager. And I sort of got the taste for, for nightlife and, um, definitely found that it was more suited to me than, than academia. Uh, and so at one point I decided that, that once I was, once I was finished my degree and once, uh, once it was time to move on from employment where I was, that I would, I would begin my own, begin my own venture. And, um, Every sort of lone venture, as it were, does come with its own learning curves. And the recent pandemic situation has been a huge one in that sense. But would you say that COVID has been the largest learning curve of your business career? Or would you say it's a different sort of lesson? I think it's been a different sort of lesson. I think it's reminded me that um, sort of uh, deprivation and uh, lack of resource breeds sort of uh, give birth innovation. 
So when the world kind of as we know it ends and we, we cease being able to do business how we should have, how we've traditionally done business, um, instead of, you know, it, unless you fold, uh, you start to look for other ways to do to achieve the same goal um, within the sphere that you're in. So, you know, I think many, many, many businesses out there uh, through COVID-19 have adapted, have learned to operate under a different, under a totally different um set of thinking instead of uh, instead of resources it's all about innovation and adaptability isn't it but also recognizing yeah, the fact absolutely. that um of course leadership is a constant learning process we never are a finished article as such and there's always more that we can learn and it's really laid bare that fact this pandemic hasn't it absolutely absolutely i mean some some you know uh, through now now the way we've come to the end of our our sort of our lockdown and sort of where um, we're sort of struggling through the next stages. The businesses that have gone under, that have um, that have not survived, are absolutely not the ones that I would have expected to have not survived. You know, you know, it's, it's some of the enormous hotel groups um, have 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 gone under as, as well as many other kind of enormous, well financed hospitality groups have just not been able to survive um, through this. Whereas a lot of smaller businesses. I guess due to you know, I think I think the sort of really small fledgling businesses wouldn't have had a chance of of making it through this pandemic, um, and the larger ones that are so so very leveraged up um, similarly didn't really have much of a chance. But the, you know the sort of the businesses in the in between who have uh, who have managed to sort of keep a small operation and sort of like we say adapt and change um, have managed to. I mean, us for example, we. We put uh, our entire business online, so um, so we started uh, a business delivering bottle cocktails from one of our venues, Looking Glass Cocktail Club, uh, to homes uh, across the UK. To um, be generally like Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, people would put in orders, but ten or twenty or or you know or um or, or, or even just two or three cocktails, and we sort of just deliver them. So that's an example of us moving and rolling with punches. Mm. And given your experience, of course, building your own business and also charting a course through this pandemic, for those younger listeners among us who may be tuning into this and are considering starting businesses themselves as well, what advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success? Advice I'd give to people on the, who want to be on the road to success? Um, I, would say, I would say you need an incredible amount of passion for what you're doing. Um, and you would need to have incredibly thick skin. Uh, you're, you're never going to make, you're never going to make it the first time. I think I was trying for years to get my, to, to, to get one, my first venue, uh, when I started out and I kept getting rejected, um, for financing. I kept getting rejected for spaces themselves, but the key is just keep going, um, and believe in your idea and keep going forward. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed for anybody listening in. And having reflected on the uh, the past just for a moment there, I think it serves that we only talk about the future as well, just before we do wrap things up on uh, this afternoon's programme. Um, we know, William, that we are going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal, as they call it, in terms of the way that we work and the way that we live. But over this next year what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at your businesses and what it's and where exactly do you see them being in 12 months time very 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 good question um i, I feel really lucky and happy to have 
stabilized um, my business through through these times. And I, as I wasn't always sure, I'm pretty damn sure we're going to make it out of this. Um, and so my goal for the next 12 months is to continue stabilizing whilst uh, building, rebuilding our war chests. Uh, and then in 12 months time, we hope to be expanding again. And I certainly wish you all the luck in the world in being able to expand before too long and look at growing the business once more. And to be honest, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us this afternoon, I think it would be a pleasure to welcome you back onto the programme at some point in the next year, just to see how those plans are coming to fruition. Wonderful. I'd be delighted to. It would be a real pleasure for me to welcome you back on, William. I've thoroughly enjoyed um, your company this afternoon. And most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base again, do take care and stay safe with all still going on. Thank you very much for your time. I was speaking on today's programme to William Knowles Moffat, entrepreneur and owner of the Looking Glass Cocktail Club and Iron Bloom in Shoreditch. Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett held a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair, as well as serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hills constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. I do hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all of those who can, Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you, and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've 
become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product, productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. 
Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer has set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.